Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey, everybody, it's Bob again, and I've got part two. Yep, part two, and I've got Joseph Michelli with me today. And if you haven't listened to part one, go back and listen to part one because it is amazing. Now, he's written eight books. You already know that if you listen to part one. But really, you know, to, to slap out eight books is not uh, that easy a thing to do. Uh, you know, it might get easier and easier as you practice. You never know. But let's ask him that question in this part of the show. But, you know, I've talked to, to, to writers and I've asked them, you know, what, what's it like writing a book? And a lot of them said it's like giving birth. So to get started, Joseph, is writing a book still like giving birth? Oh, there's so many cool parts of it. It's probably like giving birth. I, I know that when that when the baby pops out, when the book is done and you actually <laughs> have it in your hands for the first time, there is kind of a little bit. It's not quite as exciting as when I held my, my daughter or my son. But I can tell you, it's pretty, pretty emotional to see your book actually come to, to fruition after all those months of mm -hmm. waiting, right? So uh, I think there's some similarities. I mean, for me... <laughs> The, the birth process is a lot easier than writing a book in terms of uh, I didn't have a lot a lot of pain involved. But, uh, yeah, I think there are some elements of dedication and commitment to, like, child rearing that is involved for at least a couple of years of your life. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I mean, for me, um, our first child was amazing. And then our second child suddenly became a lot of work for dad because mom was actually busy with the, the second child. And suddenly I had the the first child to actually entertain and take care of for much more time of my day. Uh, so yeah, it's the, I, it is the hardest job you'll ever love, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. It really is a challenging, wonderful, fabulous job. And that's true about writing too. I mean, it's, it's not easy. I mean, I, a guy, my dad worked heavy equipment and he, he, you know, busted his back all day long. I, I don't have that kind of hard work. But from the standpoint of fixed attention, I remember when I first wrote the Starbucks experience, I would, I had a day job, right? So I was working all day in a clinical practice. And, and then I would leave my practice and I would work 12 hours. I mean, I got hardly any sleep. I mean, it was, it was crazy. I got like four hours sleep a night. And then I'd finished after 12 hours of writing and I'd get it over to, I was on the West coast dish at the time. And I had a, a colleague of mine on the East coast who would review it. So as soon as I was coming off of the night shift about four in the morning, they were waking up to look at the drafts and they were working on it for 12 hours and cleaning up the drafts from the prior day. Um, and we'd get it done. And we, we got a chapter done a week, got about 12 chapters written in about three months uh, edited all those chapters for another three months and had been writing on, you know, getting the research done for another year in advance of that. So that's the process. That's fabulously wonderful to, um, to do, but it's, it's, it takes some attention. I think it's, it's gotta be, it has to be your passion. And, and I think that's one of the major problems right now, especially with, uh, uh instant publishing and, and the ability to pull it out one book instead of having 5,000 books printed to make it cost effective. Um, there's a lot of books out there where a person's just doing it as a marketing ploy or they're just doing it because, well, that's what everybody else is doing, so I'm going to do it. Th there's no heart and soul put into the book. Now, they may think that they're doing an amazing job, but trust me, I get a lot of books across my desk and I can just look at a cover now and say, oh, yeah, self-published, open it up. Yep, Microsoft Word, sorry, bin. 
Um, and it's 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 harsh, but you know, if we want the the quality of of the knowledge that's being transferred to um, all the people that want to do better in business, then the quality of the books has to be quite high, and that doesn't happen overnight. It does take research. It does take the ability to let go of your baby and let somebody edit it and tell you, no, these chapters are in the wrong order, and um, no, you've got to rewrite this chapter because it doesn't make any sense, and you thought it was your best piece. Uh, so it's a very humbling experience as well. So I think unless you experience the real process of writing a real book for a real publisher, you don't really understand what you're putting out. And well, and I think there's, you know, this is such a mixed world of stuff, right? I mean, so I've, I've run into people who self-published books, and and frankly, I can't even understand why they thought they should write something. <laughs> I mean, literally, what caused you to think that you had a message, and then who told you you could assemble two sentences in, a, in an understandable way? I mean, it's that bad, really. And then I've read people who self-publish who have these ideas that are so amazing, and you kind of understand that if they had to wait through the whole process and they had to get editors involved, it probably would have never come out. It wouldn't have maybe had a commercial enough appeal for some of the major publishers. And so, oh, wow, I'm so grateful they, that they found a way to get their message out. It's a problem of, of vetting through all of that that's that issue right and and my fear about most things in life is that what we are what we consume and unfortunately a lot of us are consuming things that are not making us you know enriched in our lives we're kind of getting entrenched in some other drama or drama so for me uh i just don't spend a lot of time reading those books i also know a lot of people will say things like i'm a best-selling author and what that means is that you know they bought their own books on amazon or um you know what worse yet that they're the best-selling author in a small town in central america america and and thus they are a best-selling author as a result of that individual purchase yeah perception of reality or the 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 deconception of reality uh, because you've written a book makes you special. And, you know, this is a question I used to ask in my show, but I don't anymore. But when you wrote your first book, when it was published and it came out, did people perceive you differently? Did they talk to you differently? Were you put a little bit more on a pedestal? Well, I think in the first book, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially but, if they read it. I mean, I was like, <laughs> wow. I, I, but now it's weird. I mean, it really is weird. Like, I'll have you know, maybe 800 books in my hotel room and I'll get in and I'll sign 800 books and then I'll do my event and I'll be standing behind it and I'll be giving the books away to the participants and all these books are surrounding me. And then suddenly it's kind of like cool all of a sudden you're surrounded by an army of your own books uh, <laughs> and that gives you some gravitas, right? But, um, you know, I don't know that writing a book makes you any different than any other. I mean, we, we imbue certain qualities to people, I guess, and writing a book is something special. It really isn't. It just means you've taken a lot of time to try to focus on one topic and share that idea with somebody. Yeah, it's a craft. I mean, if you go in and somebody can create a beautiful uh, chest of drawers out of solid wood and, and it's beautifully finished, you appreciate that. Uh, but you have no idea about how many years and how many, uh, how much pain that person went in through to get to the level where they could produce something like that consistently? Yeah, no, I think that's the key, and, and and that's probably what makes you different. What should elevate your status is the merit of your work, right? Not necessarily that you do a kind of work. Um, being really bad as a doctor may still. You know, you still may be called doctor, but, you know, you shouldn't have the same level of regard as you would if you're extra, extra, extremely crafted in your skills. So 
Yeah, I, I think at the end, authorship is a noble profession, and it, it doesn't, you know, most people don't look at you and go, oh my gosh, it's the author coming over, uh, <laughs> unlike a debt collector, right? Uh, so I think there that there's some status maybe to it, but I, I really haven't, that I don't notice as much. Hmm. Now let's, uh, let's just dig into your books a little bit. Um, out of all your books, which one shouldn't people read? I know that's a tough question to ask. Uh, no, no, I, I can answer that. Prescription for Excellence, unless you're in healthcare, probably not a book to read. It's pretty, it's really cumbersome unless you're in healthcare. <laughs> I'll be really honest with you. I mean, I love the way I started the book. I, get, I mean, I don't have it in front of me, like, but I remember vaguely saying, you know, imagine you're in an industry that has to have the innovation of an Apple and the safety of a, of a NASA and you also have to have the customer hospitality service of a Ritz-Carlton. Uh, welcome to healthcare today. I mean, it really is a challenging world of complex safety, security, innovation, customer centricity. But at the end of the day, unless you're in healthcare and you deal with the regulatory pressures and the payment pressures and all the changes that go on in that industry, I think that book would be a hard read. Um, so, you know, but it's also a very successful book of mine. And there are a lot of really cool stories of what healthcare has done to become more centric to patients and very inspiring stories where life and death is in the balance. So, I mean, it, it has its place. Plus all the proceeds of that book go to uh, the Wounded Warrior Fund uh, through Operation Mend at UCLA. So, you, you know, if you want to buy the book, if no other reason than to help put faces back on soldiers who've had them blown off by you know, improvised explosive devices, that would be a really good reason to buy it. But I'm just saying, if you're going to take all my work, um, that one has the least applicability to people outside of the industry. All right, so it, it's the last book you should read. It's kind of like once you get used to his style, uh, you've enjoyed his other books, um, which are all great. Uh, then you, you know, and he doesn't, and you're tired of his blog, maybe. Uh, maybe this is the book you should be picking up. I mean, yeah, there's nothing wrong with having a deeper understanding of of an industry that is critical to your survival. Maybe not now, but when you get older, trust me it'll become way, way, way more critical in your life. Um, and understanding how it works and when you sit down and talk with your doctor, it would make it completely, it could transform your relationship with your doctor because you could empathize with them. Or when you're in a hospital, you could empathize why people are doing what they're doing. So in, in, you know, in everything in life, the more you know, the better and easier it is to navigate through life. So do you think that would be a truism after reading this book? Yeah, I think that's true. I think, you know, again, it's. I think the book is still a little stacked against you in the healthcare arena. I mean, it, certainly as a patient, you would say, wow, I wish more healthcare systems did that, right? And, <laughs> and, I, and I, I realize that, you know, I've got to help my doctor help me in this way, right? I mean, I think that you can get that from it. Um, my, my truth here is that UCLA was a hospital system that was 30th percentile in, in patient satisfaction. And they were okay with that because they produce amazing clinical outcomes. They're best in the West and USA's, US News and World Report's ranking of hospitals. They, they do some of the most innovative organ transplants in the country. They are on the cutting edge of cancer research. They're the ones who founded Herceptin, which is the, the hormone receptive drug uh, for breast cancer patients. I mean, there's a lot of things they do that are fabulous, but when it came to the customer or patient experience, it was pretty gnarly. I mean, being 30th percentile is not impressive for an institution that's at the 95th percentile on pretty much every other metric. So, um, yeah, how do you transform that? How do you get it to be that patients don't 
continue to write letters like the following, you know, dear Dr. Feinberg, I'm alive and I shouldn't be. Thank goodness to the technologies of UCLA. But you know what? I'm not so sure it was worth what I went through to be alive. Fix it. Right. I mean, how do you stop being that kind of place that has a great product with a terrible experience? There's lessons there, but I, it's not my it's not my first read. It would be my last read in my my. You know, if I had to read my own books again, um, I would probably put it toward the end. Well, you know what's interesting. You know, my my wife uh, does uh, interpretation, and uh, when she she works for the hospitals, and and uh, she'll be sitting there. And some of the practitioners, and, and these aren't the doctors, these are the support staff, um, some of them are awful at their job. And she finds it very disheartening that she's there trying to do her best and the patient's there just trying to survive and understand what's going on and dealing with a lot of emotion. And then somebody's coming in and they've just turned off all their emotions because they're struggling with the environment that they're living in. And, and this is basically, a, if you work in a hospital, it becomes a PTSD environment that you're in and it wears down and it damages the human soul. Do you think this is a fundamental problem with, with the, the hospitals or it's kind of always been this way? Right. Well, healthcare, unlike, you know, a lot of other customer experiences where I'm trying to enhance the pleasure or create some joyful value for customers or want them to come back. I mean, healthcare is all about alleviating suffering and it's taking unpleasant things and it's, it's catching people in times in life when they really don't want to be where they are, like sitting in your hospital bed or in your waiting room, uh, maybe waiting on bad news. There's so much backstory to every human situation in healthcare that I think it does bode a different kind of uh, service delivery. And it's, I, this book is written to care for caregivers, so there is that in there. We've got a lot of messaging about helping people renew their purpose and passion for the work because the work is among the most noble of all time. Um, and then also in addition to that, it's helping them understand there are many ways to care. You know, you can't fix everybody, um, but you certainly can care about everybody. You can you can be with people. You can you know you can give hope to people. It isn't always about doing for people. Sometimes it's helping people do for themselves so they can take care of their own wounds or manage their own diabetes or whatever it might be. So the book is, a, I think, a different – it messages what is caring, you know, the five ways of caring. It, it messages how do you care for the caregiver and how if you're somebody in leadership in healthcare, do you try to help keep people focused on the next patient because the next patient is the most important patient. Um, and I say that in the sense of if we always think about that, we're always refreshing ourselves so that we're not burnt out from the last traumatic moment, but we're re-engaging. Because we may have treated this 7,000 times today, but this is the first time that person's being treated by this hospital for that event. Um, so anyway, that's a lot of the way the book is structured. And I think it is the unique challenges of healthcare. Hmm. Yeah, it reminded me a lot of... of um how you should, uh, let's say if you're working in, in a service industry, like Starbucks for say, um, it's that every customer is a unique customer, just like every patient is a unique customer. And, and you may have served a coffee 5,000 times this week, but the person that's requesting the coffee right now needs the coffee or it's part of something that has to have happen. It's their daily ritual. You know, it's, it's 
Yeah, it's important to them. Um, yeah, as, as is their name and the use of their name and some of the other aspects. You know, we, Starbucks went to names on partners and names on cups. Uh, we talk about that in leading the Starbucks way, mainly because it was an effort to get personal again in a very mass brand. Um, and it was annoying to people in Europe. They didn't like it. They thought it was too intimate, too American. <laughs> but they got over it. Um, and people get the names wrong, and it's still a source of great joy and lots of posts on the Internet. But for the most part, it's still better to try. And if it's a familiar person that you have common, you know, look, Dale Carnegie has been saying since time immemorial that the most important thing we can say to anybody is their name said lovingly, right? It has great influence on people. And so, you know, it's, those are the, some of the things that we tackle in various books, but making it personal, use of name as an example, is pretty important. Why do they spell the names wrong? Is it just because, <laughs> I, isn't there a technique there? Bob, let me think of how do you spell Bob? <laughs> yeah, they spell it backwards. I tell you, there's some names out there that are impossible to spell, but it is, <laughs> I don't think it's intentional most of the time that names are misdone. The good news about names, though, is kind of interesting. I don't think when it originally conceptualized as a service strategy at Starbucks, but it turned out that when you're actually getting your drinks, when they're calling for you to pick up your drinks, they used to raffle them off. Okay, who had the tall latte? Uh, they, do you, all right, no, you had one, you had one. Let's say, okay, who's stronger? I mean, it was kind of crazy. <laughs> Whereas now I say Bob, and there may be two Bobs, and then I can say Bob, not that latte, and normally that wins it down. So um, yeah, it's a benefit even to the customer not getting the wrong drink. Um, if I'm able to, to get it connected to your name. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Zappos, um, an, ex an extraordinary company that's doing an amazing, amazing job. And let's face it, folks, there are other companies that are as good as Zappos and are doing an amazing job. But Zappos just has seemed to get uh, more limelight than, than others. Um, but they do some pretty amazing things. Like one of the things that they do, which blew my mind when I heard it, if you're doing an interview, at the end of the interview, they actually offer you a week's salary not to take the job. It's like, look, at if I give you like 1200 bucks or like 800 bucks or 600 bucks, would you not take this job? As a question in your interview. I mean, that's what? That's insane. So they've kind of taken the idea of the importance of the staff member, the training of the staff member, and brought it to a whole nother level. And because they've done that, they've been able to evolve uh, the humble shoe company into something that's a bit of a phenomenon. So when you were investigating and researching and, and, and chatting with people about Zappos, for you, what was uh, the huge aha moment that blew your mind? Well, so it, I never remember the first lines of my book, but I'll always remember what I wrote in, in Zappos. It, it starts with, I saw Winnie the Pooh running through the parking lot. Yes, I work at Zappos. <laughs> and it was a tweet. And then the first word to the book was unconventional, right? So I just related a tweet from an employee at Zappos. That's how I start the book. And then I use the word unconventional. And then everything falls from there, right? I mean, this, this is an unconventional company. They do things so differently. They come to their core values differently. They filter people to make sure that they truly are living those values um, before they hire them. Once hired, they onboard them differently and they saturate them in their culture. And then at the end of that, they give them a litmus test. Are you really wanting to join us or not? Because here's money to walk if you don't think you're right. Please self-select out of this culture. Do not contaminate this place. If this isn't right for you, take the money and run. 
And all the people who stay sign that they're committed to these values. They appreciate that the company is willing to buy out interlopers so they don't get contaminated. They're all charged with you know, elevating this culture and defending the island from people who don't fit to make great things happen in our way of doing things. And it's just crazy, the stuff they come up with. And, and I think, it, you know, I've talked about this brand to really straight-laced three-piece CPA firms, and it's very different than the way things happen in those cultures. And it causes to run against the grain and make them think about why do we do this this way all the time? Could, what, what, if, what if we tried this? And it's been fascinating to see kind of loosening up of the collar psychologically, right? And they can kind of do business in a more open way, uh, less weighted down. That's Zappos. They're flying with balloons into the sky. That's kind of the way I see them. <laughs> do you think Zappos is kind of like Google where they're disruptors, where they're saying, look, you know, we're in this industry. Why do we have to do it the same as everybody else? Let's change it so in the future, everybody will be the Zappos way. Yeah, it's a competitive advantage. I mean, look, if you just keep flying with a flock, you're going to have to fly faster or you're going to have to fly smarter with that flock. And what if you zigged out of that, that pattern? You know, you run the risk of totally bombing and crashing because you know the flock knows how to move, right? But if you figured it out, if you found the right way to do things, you could do things that they're not even approaching. The great book in that topic is, is Blue Ocean Strategy, right? I mean, if you read it, it pretty much tells you simplistically – decomplexify your offerings, make sure that you, you come up with true value that doesn't have any thought of what other people are doing, but really what the customer needs. And if you do some of those kind of core things, wow, you're swimming in a blue ocean while all these other people are bleeding out and attacking each other in the water and the water's filled with red blood of the fight. I mean, that's the goal of a Zappos is to find a place that is unconventionally different than the way most businesses are operating that future proofs you from a lot of the competitors. Well, I think you said something very, very telling there, understanding what a customer needs that as simple as it sounds is a brutally difficult question. And many, many companies that have faced that question have been unable to actually uh, do anything with it because they're just not psychologically ready as an organization to understand what their customers actually need. You can Google this uh, anytime you want, but there's a Steve Jobs clip um, where he's talking about customer innovation. And, and he basically cans a software technology called Open Docs, which developers have been working on for seven years. And he goes with an alternative at the time. I think he went with Java. And so uh, this developer is asking him a question in an open forum of developers in a very snarky way. And he says to Steve Jobs, you know, I've been dedicating my life to Open Docs, and it's a superior product to what you went with with uh, with Java. And I want to know, Mr. Jobs, what the heck have you been doing for the last seven years of your life, right? And and Jobs, in an uncharacteristically kind way, <laughs> says, uh, you know, you're probably right. It probably has all kinds of benefits and attributes I'm not even aware of. But I can tell you what, customers don't want all that extra stuff. It's too complex. It doesn't make any sense to them. We're not in the business of creating the best possible technology. We're in the business of solving against human needs and essentially we just have to dial the right solution for what people will experience and and yours isn't it and java is and 
we're going to be able to sell bazillions of dollars of whatever this is. So, but, but if you can, you know, it's just a good clip to get, cause I think it goes back to the thing that you can over engineer your solutions for customers. You can try to replicate the solutions others have provided and get no lift. Um, the goal is to figure out what, what do customers want, need, and desire that may be being unfulfilled by your competitors and what unconventional ways can you deliver it to them? Well, you know, uh, after like 350 books, that's basically the secret to business, guys. Uh, it's you find out what your customers need, you create a product that actually fulfills or overcomes their problem, and then you let them know about it. You don't go out, make a product, and then say, hey, you need this product. That's how old-fashioned businesses have worked and, and and it's just a lazy well you can't you can't business. even control the message anymore oh, like, exactly a couple of decades ago somebody like you bob could have spun it you know in such a way that all of us believed we needed it whether we needed it or not and there were only a few channels of communication now you know if you if you sell something like that to people it will come back to you in a big way in a big social media response of what a lame product it was uh, so it's not going to work. Even if you could control the message to get people to get it in their hands, you could not keep it in their hands. So <laughs> I think you're so right about what is business. Drucker said it best. He said, you were not in business to make a profit. We're in business to create a customer. It's through customers that all profits come. I've, I've kind of refined his statement and I now say we're in business to create a profitable customer because, you know, just getting market share is not the goal. You have to create profit. So, you know, I could have 90% of a non-economically feasible market. Um, that isn't what I want. I want people who can buy the product, who will enjoy the product, who will continue to support the product, who will buy future products from me and help me build my business. I want to create a profitable customer who helps me profit and through whom I can profit, uh, for whom I can profit. So um, anyway, I'm just a, I'm a big fan of customers. I, you know, if we don't try to understand them, Business is over. Game, set, match. Yep, absolutely. I think um, one of the things people also don't understand is your brand or brand experience because that's really how you should never say just brand. You say the brand experience is the rule book or how and uh, where and why a customer is interested in going back and utilizing your uh, product or service again. Um, and, and great brands have an amazing customer service culture behind it. They have a, um, a very aggressive approach to improving their product and improving their service. And that's why they're great. And it doesn't happen overnight. A lot of times when I'm talking to customers about trying to save their brand or rebuild a brand, I'm guys, this is like six months, a year before we're going to see any movement on attitude on your brand because you've just so royally screwed it up by being greedy and not understanding how to do stuff and you've been basically pummeled by social media. It's not an easy task, but it's doable. You just got to believe in it long enough so we can dig our way out of this tremendous uh, negative brand pit that you've created. Well, the world needs you, Bob. I mean, it needs you to just on the <laughs> distinction between brand and brand experience alone. I mean, there's so many people who don't get it. I mean, they invest so much in brand and then they have no experience to support it. My favorite here in the U.S. is, is car dealers. These people yell at you 24 hours a day on television about their cars. I mean, literally yell at you. I have a 
a dealer here who gets on TV and goes, we're huge, Tampa, we're huge. And he's just screaming at the audience and he's doing every kind of gymnastic to try to get attention. And the more absurd, the better. And, um, and so he's spending, I don't even want to know how much he's spending, right? Uh, in his spend for his brand. Now, when you go to the dealership, I would bet you he's not spending one-tenth of that money on training his people, right? It's all about bringing people in a funnel and then hoping that the experience isn't bad enough that people are going to churn. It's, and, that, and that's not a sustainable process. I keep investing that kind of money in attraction. Why not really balance your brand and getting people to come in the door through some messaging? But once they're there, living a brand experience where people will go out of there talking in social media, telling their friends about you so that you lower the future cost of advertising, right? I mean, that's the goal of this customer experience journey thing that we're talking about. So the fact that you can articulate that and help your clients and, and people you work with get it is a big value proposition. Um, and then beyond that, what do you say? How do you know what customers want? How do you study customer insights? How do you position solutions? That stuff's not as easy as it sounds. And a lot of people thought they had the right solution dialed up, but they didn't do enough time with customer analytics, focus groups, quality, quantitative and quanti qualitative market analysis to really validate the concept or run it out in test market or any number of things. So I'm just, uh, I'm excited the world has resources like you that, that have that talent. And I hope to, you know, try to be a resource to people some by watching it work in various business and help them follow some of the footsteps. Well, you know, it's interesting. Nice rant, by the way. Thank you. I was on one. I was going there, man. <laughs> I'm ranting about customer experience. It's just I clean off the mic with a towel now. Yeah, well, uh, you know, for, for me, I think the reason business books are so important, and I get this question all the time, Bob, why do you do this podcast? I mean, you're not a writer, you know, you, you, you love your business books, but why are business books so important? Why are you trying to get more people to read business books? And the reason is that an educated client is much easier to deal with. And I am really, I've spent my whole life going in, seeing a client and having to educate them for sometimes quite a long time. Um, and then they don't get charged for that. So I really love that writers are putting out amazing business books and people are reading these books. And then when I sit down and chat with them, that's one of the first questions I ask. Hey, what was the last business book you read? And based on their answer, that's how I approach that person because I know they have some programming in them that, because they've read a book. Well, I'm in a, I'm, I so agree that, that, you know, and the other issue that happens now is a lot of people come in with, you know, just fragments of knowledge they picked up on the Internet. And, and some of that's good information, some of it's not. And if you're misinformed, it's even more challenging to steer people back to, to some reality. <laughs> yeah, steering people back to some reality. Not the reality, but some reality. Some reality. Yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm let's not face that it. ambitious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For God's sake, it's just customer service. Even when I'm ranting, I'm not even that ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's talk a little bit about uh, another one of your books, The New Gold Standard, Five Leadership Principles for Creating a Legendary Customer Experience, courtesy of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company. Why is Ritz ritzy? Because 
these people, unlike the unconventional Zappos, these people, they are double down on service excellence and they're double down on product quality. So they've always been a standard and I call them the new gold standard of customer experience, but they've always been a standard bearer for quality hospitality from the days of Cesar Ritz when he was saying things like, you know, service should be invisible. It should be omnipresent, but you should not know it that it's fully there, right? So you don't want intrusive service. You want that kind of mystical, they just show up magically. I think something and bam, it's there. Um, that kind of standard has always been part of the DNA of, of uh, Cesar Ritz and his descendants and ultimately the modern day Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company. Yeah, it's like almost a butlering service where you just assume that the person's going to read your mind and it'll be taken care of. And you, you what it does is it, if you go into an environment like that, um, it it enables you as a business person or uh, as anybody really um, to step back a little bit and actually do a better job of doing your job because you're not worried about little tiny details because we only have so much you know RAM in our brain. We only have so much uh, awareness. And uh, I do remember when I was much younger, I was a photographic assistant and I was super popular because I did ridiculous stuff that no other assistant was doing. Like I would phone up the, um, the client and find out what's your favorite beer. Do you like coffee? Do you like tea? And then I would go out um, because I was freelance and go and buy that beer and buy that coffee. And then when the photographer was there, I would basically blend the coffee. And then when they were having lunch, I'd bring out the beer unbeknownst to the photographer, the client loved it. And that's how I built up my reputation is like, oh yeah, if you're doing really, really high-end photography, you, this is the only guy in Toronto that is actually going to blow away your client. Amen. And let me tell you, that is the art. And that is what Ritz-Carlton teaches and preaches. It's the meeting the unstated wants, needs, and desires of customers alongside of the stated needs. I mean, that's the difference, right? I mean, some brands can barely do what they you ask them to do. And they want your money anyway. And then other brands kind of not only do that, but they kind of know other peripheral needs, kind of anticipate what you might be needing down the road, kind of step into that space, um, watch you, uh, you know, are attentive to your preferences, serve you preferences, not just needs. I mean, it's crazy the difference. And that's, the I think, a premium advantage to, to great brands as they anticipate the unstated wants, needs, and desires and preferences of those they serve. Well, and it goes all the way back to what we were talking about is like understanding what your client needs. How can you do that type of service if you really don't know why that person has walked into your store or ordered your product online? Amen. And, and that's once you get to that, I mean, both at the overt and the less obvious need states, um, then you, you can serve people in a higher level. Okay, here's a toughie. You just said when you get to that. Um, how does a company get to that? Now, I know analytics are way cheaper than they were 5, 10, 15 years ago, and um, there's some amazing companies popping up almost every day which are using um, some pretty sophisticated algorithms to simplify the ridiculous amount of data that is out there. Uh, do you think it's easier these days for companies to find out what, their target demographic actually needs or is it still going to require people to roll up their sleeves and and uh, 
ask the tough questions? Oh, the science is easier. The, the science part of the science and art formula is easier, right? I mean, we can get all kinds of data now about everybody doing everything, what they read, what they're, you know, what time they go to bed, you know, and we know everything about consumers, it seems like today, scary, but true. Um, but that said, once you have all that big data, somebody's got to make that data into actionable intelligence. And yep. so you got to convert the big data into, okay, what's our best bet? to put something on the street right now that's gonna address consumer needs. Uh, and that takes a, an artistic, nuanced understanding. It takes multi-generations of leaders kind of coming together and kind of looking at different segmentations and saying, okay, for that segment, the need state might be this, and here's our core offering, and here's how we can vary it in a cost-effective way to address the needs of that important segment. Here's a segment we can't really get to. They're not a large percentage of our population. We shouldn't be trying to build everything for everybody. We may have to offload that segment and really not have a strategy for them. We're going to strategize for these three, four core groups. I think it's all doable, and, and I see brands doing it fabulously. I see other brands just not even using any of that, and I don't know what their strategy is based on, but it's certainly not consumer data. It may be based on what can we do better next year or what can we bring to market, but it's certainly not based on what customers, any intelligence of customers. So I think it's a balance of having great customer analytics and then having a great strategic leadership team that looks at your strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, and then figures out how do we take what we want for our customers based on our strategic priorities and make it happen. It's, and most all of my books have some element of the leadership as well as the customer analytics uh, factored in. Okay, well, look at I got three books in front of me here: the Starbucks Experience, the New Gold Standard, and the Zappos Experience. Um, That's where those three books got sold. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> Dang, glad to hear that we. Uh, I found one in a dumpster. There you go. Okay, that's better. We had to give you one with a gift certificate for you. To read. <laughs> you know, it came with a free coffee. How could I? Uh, how could I resist? So, do you think that what the the business book reader really wants? are just five principles? I think that most of us as humans can't function beyond too many more than five <laughs> principles. You know, according That's to short-term memory, it's, you know, it's, it's five plus or minus two. Um, you know, you can kind of remember things in that zone genuinely. I, I want, you know, for, first, you know, I'll be honest. I mean, it's a good formula for me. Five principles allows me to do two chapters per principle and opening chapter, or closing chapter, 12 chapters hits the book word limit that normally is part of the contract. So there's all kinds of behind the scenes truths to it. For me, I can normally remember the five principles if I'm having to talk about them in an interview. And sometimes I only remember one that really stands out for me at any given time. I think it's an organizing, not overwhelming number. Um, so that's kind of the way it's all structured, but no, there's no, you know, if all you take all my books, I have probably 70 principles, right. Uh, <laughs> and uh, a couple of them may overlap even if you get real honest. So, um, I don't know it, it, to me, it's just a way of structuring a book and trying to say, this is principled behavior though. It's not, um, it's something that will last across the test of time. It will last across geography and across businesses, apply the principles, execute against the principles. You're going to be ahead. Those who don't will be behind. That's pretty much the simplicity of what, what I believe. 
Now, with these three books, again, we've got like a, a coffee distribution, a coffee creation distribution company. We've got a, a, a hotel chain, or actually it's, it's a hotel management group that goes into properties and helps them manage. Yeah, a few people understand that, but that's a distinction, yes. Uh, and then you've got Zappos, which is a, a shoe company. Uh, an online retailer, I like to call it. Oh, so an online retailer. Because they're selling things now beyond shoes. But an online retailer, we've got brick and mortar, you know, in the food and beverage service, and you've got the the hospitality management sector. Yeah. Thinking about all three of those industries or or, or, or types or styles of, of, of running a business, what was the fundamental similarity that went through all three of those organizations? Yeah, I think at the end of it all, culture, leadership matters, right? I mean, so driving the right culture to deliver service. Don't get too in love with your product because it doesn't matter what product you're in. How, Starbucks isn't in the coffee business. They're in the people business serving coffee. That's a Howard Schultz quote, uh, their CEO. I, I think that hotel beds are a dime a dozen. To charge $800 for a room night, you better do more than just have a nice thread count. Uh, you know, you're going to have to do something uh, to earn that value proposition and to hold your brand together. Um, you know, if you're going to sell online, a lot of it's going to be fairly impersonal transactions in front of a computer screen. There's still things you can do on a computer screen to make it more personal and to address the customer need, the user experience, as they're prone to call it online. Um, but, you know, there's going to be problems and somebody's going to have to call a call center. And so you're going to have to have an interface between the technology interface of brand distribution all the way out to the call center. So what's going to happen if I call your customer loyalty team at the call center? Um, all of them, I think, are generated on the notion, make it easier for customers, engage them emotionally, and build a culture that commits to excellent delivery of experiences for those you serve. You know, very interesting there because I think um, a, a lot of problems with um – the online driven organizations is they really drop the ball when it comes to the uh, human interface and uh, the permissions given to the customer service people. Uh, one company that's doing an outstanding job about that is Amazon. And, and, you know, I buy a lot of products from them because it's just so incredibly convenient. A lot of times it's not the best price, but gosh, it's incredibly convenient. Um, and if I ever have any problems, I just call up the customer service person because they're just so agreeable and great to work with. It's it's like they're saying, oh, yeah, well, why were we chatting? I've already refunded your Visa card, and uh, I've contacted the seller, and they're going to be sending you a new product, and and uh, do you, when do you need to get it? Well, it's you know it's almost Christmas, and I'd really like to get it in a couple of days. No problem. I'm going to send you a voucher. What we're going to do is we're going to cancel this order, order it again, and we'll get same-day delivery. And so, well, it's like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So, Don't worry. It will be delivered today. Yeah, no, and J Jeff Bezos is really committed to that. He gets what customer experience is. He's he's got some great quotes out there on what customer experience is, so it's worth grabbing. And and you know, Amazon Prime here is all about uh, taking a pain point away from customers who are high volume users, not to have to constantly pay for shipping. Um, and and so there's a lot of things that got invented through their their rapid response teams like removing that pain point vis-a-vis -vis creating Amazon Prime that have done great for the business too. I mean, people who have Amazon Prime have a license to buy now. You know, it's like, wow, now that I don't have to pay for shipping costs, I'll even buy more things I don't need. Um, so, you know, I think that you see you see the wisdom of that company and the way they've structured it. And, and you know, Zappos is a part of the Amazon family where Amazon has left them alone. They were acquired by Amazon for $1.2 billion. Amazon has left them alone because their model is slightly different, whereas in 
Amazon relies on drop shipping from third-party providers. Um, Zappos controls the warehouse, so they don't even have to wait for an online provider to screw it up, right? Um, Amazon will fix it if a third-party provider screws it up, and if a third-party provider screws it up enough, they'll stop doing business with them. Um, but but Zappos controls the warehouse. So, I mean, to me, those are very similar models, but Amazon was smart enough to leave Zappos alone on their core strengths in customer experience delivery. Now, uh, for people who want to learn more, um, get a hold of your writings via blogs, those type of things, or just, you know, connect with you, what's the best ways to do all those things? Yeah, we don't charge for blogs or podcasts or anything. I don't have a subscription <laughs> service. I should pay attention to what Bezos did on his subscription <laughs> service. I screwed it all up. Free blogs, podcasts, uh, no popcorn, but you can otherwise dive in at the Joseph Michelli website, which is uh, josephmichelli.com. That's spelled J-O-S-E-P-H, as in Joseph, and then Michelli, which is spelled M-I-C-H-E-L-L-I.com. Excellent. Now, uh, before we go, is there anything that you can recommend to our listening audience so that they can excel in customer service? And, put a cherry on the top, who would you like to write a book about next about their customer service? Which company? Bob, are you, is your company available for me to write about? I don't know. Let me, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I have a, a lot of companies, um, but I never say them in advance. I don't mean to be mystical. I'm working relationships sure, with companies yeah, and yeah. trying to figure out who's positioned. But, but, you know, I, I mean, if anybody, if any of your listeners have somebody they think really is outstanding and they want to write me and let me know, and they'd love to have a book really understanding the deep dive, I'm always welcoming their input. Um, as for, you know, what are the key messages? Here's a simple one, the biggest simple one of all is in order for your employees and your team and your staff and even yourself to know what you know you want to what customer experience excellence looks like you have to decide what do you want customers to feel in every interaction and what do you want to be known for and if you can answer those two questions and if everybody on your team can answer those questions in alignment then you have a branded customer experience already beginning if they can't you better start there now uh, last question I promise this time out of all your books which is the book that you think people should read first? <laughs> All right. Which of your children do you like more? Um, <laughs> you know, I think, uh, gosh, my, this is hard. It's between the Starbucks experience just as a fun, lighter read and the new gold standard. Um, uh, yeah, I think between those two, I think the New Gold Standard is the most, probably most helpful book of all of them. If you just had to buy one of my books and never buy another, that would be the one I would think you should read. And uh, the Zappos experience is fun, but I would say the New Gold Standard. Yeah, I chose them. Okay, well, okay. This is kind of like, kind of please don't tell the other books. Yeah, exactly. Give me paper cuts when you wake up. Do you think the New Gold Standards is more of a how-to book or uh, more of a, philosoph a philosophical I like, book? I think it's my best blend of those. That's why I like I mean, there's some really wonderful stories of the things the ladies and gentlemen of the Ritz-Carlton do in service to others. So it's awesome. It's also got some very practical tools. Gallup let me use some of their metrics in there that normally are real proprietary. So it's a nice blend, I think. You can see how they do it really well, uh, but you also can be inspired by, by the stories from the customer's vantage point. Yeah, and I think that's important. you got to have the stories to back up the facts or the system or whatever so people know how to interpret it based on their personality because if you have a service-based company, it's not about you have to be this type of personality. It's like, no, we want you to have this type of service attitude. Please make it work with your quirky personality. 
And, and the cool part here, Bob, is this just the, the recommendation of the new gold standard is in keeping with what I think we talked about, which is what's best for customers. You know, personally for me, I'd rather you buy the Mercedes-Benz book because it's my latest book and I'm always trying to drive numbers on the last book that I've written. But that said, I don't really care that you buy the Mercedes-Benz book as much as I think if you had one book to buy, it would be the new gold standard. And then get the Mercedes book. Yeah, then, of course. Yeah, my kids would like that too. <laughs> hey, Joseph. Amazing, amazing, amazing. I was a little worried. Geez, can we talk for two hours? And geez, you know, we could have made this a three-parter easily. I think uh, I think we're just getting warmed up. But I really appreciate it, Bob. You're so kind to, to have taken this much time to share this message. And I, I'm very grateful to you. If there's anything else we can do for you, let us know. All right, folks. Thanks for listening. And um, please, go out there, get a book, maybe even the new gold standard, this week. And start educating yourself so you can make your customers happier. And in the long run, you'll make more money. Joseph, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash business book talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.